Welcome to The Paulist. Um, this is a daily comics analysis podcast where I look at various comic books, superhero stuff, graphic novels, indie and small press comics, you name it, and um, we do analysis of a comic every day. Um, I'm Tuplai on Twitter at T-W-O-P-L-A-I, or you can email me at um, Tuplai at gmail.com. And you can find The Paulist on SoundCloud or iTunes or Stitcher. And I am an academic, I'm a critic, and a teacher. And really, this podcast is about immersing us in um, in comics, in comics as a vital ve- uh, medium and uh, a cultural force. So today, we're going to talk about uh, Little Robot, which is um, an all-ages comic, really targeted, I think, toward younger readers, but um, touching and uh, powerful and affecting, nonetheless, whatever your age um, Little Rob- Robot is published by First Second and, um, of course, created by Ben Hatke, um, a cartoonist whose reputation is, is rising um, deservedly. And um, I uh, discovered Ben Hatke because I heard about his previous series, uh, Zeta the Space Girl, picked it up for myself and for my daughter, and we read it together and loved it. Loved it so much that uh, a couple years back, my daughter was Zeta for... Halloween. Uh, And if you're familiar with Zeta, then you'll know what I'm talking about when it was really fun that I got to be strong, strong for Halloween uh, with with my little Zeta daughter. So that was was a lot of fun. And that's a great series to check out, Um, whether you are a kid or or not. (laughs) Um, And and I just want to add, I talked about this in um, the previous episode, which was actually out earlier today that um, the, my plan is to change to focus on Fridays on what I'll call the Friday Family Graphic Novel. And um, I, w- I w- really want to spend more time talking about all-ages comics and the um, you know booming market of um, boom, <laughs> first, second, graphics, um, all those various comics that are really targeting younger readers. Um, Part of my reason for interest in that is because uh, I mentioned earlier that I'm an academic, and specifically, I am an um, an education uh, graduate student, and uh, specifically in the areas of literacy and language development. And so, I'm very interested in reading readers, young readers, um, and uh, and how comics play a role in um, you know the 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 fostering and the development of young readers specifically in the United States, which is my context, but I, I, I'm interested in it um, globally and interested in the ways that we as you know, cultural consumers are global people. Um, and so, um, anyway, Friday, the Friday Family Graphic Novel is going to focus on a book like Little Robot or maybe like the work of Raina Telgemeier or, um, uh, you know, talk, I'll probably talk this coming Friday about a book that has uh, just come out, which I will actually save for talking about when I talk about the pull list, which reminds me. So today's episode is about Little Robot. Um, I'm actually probably going to touch on Little Robot near the end of the episode because prior to that, I'd like to do two things that I've been promising. One is to revisit the Eisner winners that were announced last Friday at San Diego Comic-Con and um, <laughs> to also revisit the speculation that I made um, a few days before it of what I thought would win and what I would have picked to win myself if I had a vote, um, if I were a creator who was part of the voting pool. Um, 
and then to talk about who won and let's we'll see how I did as far as my attempts to predict um, and then I want to also talk about new comic book day comics which I'll probably I think I'm I'm thinking that I'm gonna save that till the end so I'll start with the Eisner's I'll talk a little bit about little robot and then we'll get into the new comic book uh, new comic book day books that I'm picking up um, in I'll try to do that in a non-boring non-laundry list um, looking for general trends and themes kind of way all right so um, so the Eisner's happened and it was fun it was really fun to um, watch on Twitter <laughs> as people that I followed on Twitter uh, announced being at the ceremony and the things they saw and John Barrowman uh, hosting and the, the whole thing um, and uh, it was actually also really fun hearing about where I had hits and misses in my picks um, I I really um, you know encourage you if you haven't seen this to go to the the blog of the Comics Alternative the Comics Alternative is another podcast and they do a great job of covering um, alternative independent you know basically everything in the wide world um, outside of the the big two superhero comics um, but they also cover young readers comics and um, it's a great podcast and the the blog which um, occasionally has contributions from uh, various writers critics comics scholars um, the blog uh, is, is something I get to be a part of. I get to edit posts that go up there. But there was a post we put up, a bunch of contributors recently, um, commenting on the Eisner nominees. And all this was, of course, before the actual Eisners. Um, one of the um, posts on there uh, was a proposal by a, um, a comic scholar named Beth Davies Stavka that the Eisners ought to include a category this was sort of her wish list, um, a, a category that um, awarded, acknowledged uh, the comics that um, were the most socially engaged. She sort of suggested something like comic most likely to change the world. You know, I, I might call it like the biggest social impact comic. And um, I think it's a provocative idea. It's a way to get at how um, really um, powerful and and culture changing and idea changing and prescient comics could be. Um, you should definitely read that and the other contributions by the other columnists who had different kinds of opinions. I wrote a thing in there. Um, but um, it was actually really gratifying because as the, uh, the winners were announced, I, I thought about how if you have a very expansive notion of what it means to affect and change the world that there was quite a lot that was acknowledged that did that, um, either in the nominees or even in the winners. Um, I have to admit that there were a lot of places where I felt like it be, really did become a, co a popularity contest. You know, the winners were actually, um, I guess overall I would say a lot of the winners were ones where I thought, of course, I should have picked that one because that's the most popular one in the list. And, um, you know, it's, it's obviously things are popular for a reason. <laughs> popular often means good. Um, but I think in some places I, I'm, I still would have voted in another direction as far as significance or quality or uniqueness or whatever. Um, but I, I can acknowledge, I can also see how good um, those popular um, and chosen uh, uh, candidates were. And so let's get into it. Before I start, let me just say that I kept, by my count, there are 29 categories in the publicized ones. I think there's other Eisners for 
um, you know, the, their sort of um, Hall of Fame and then the retailers things and stuff like that that aren't covered in these categories. But um, of the ones that they announce and list um, and the ones that I talked about, there's 29 categories. And just to give you my stats from the top, um, what I did uh, last Wednesday in the extra sode is that I picked what I thought the Eisners would, the Eisner voters would pick, and I, I and then I gave my pick. And sometimes they were one and the same, but most of the time they were separate. Um, and then occasionally I would mention, <laughs> this is cheating now because now I could be talking about three out of the five. But occasionally I mentioned another one that I thought might be the pick. Um, and so out of that, I went and did the numbers. Um, I was half, I was half right. <laughs> I was half smart, uh, I guess. So of the ones where I accurately picked that the Eisner vote would go to this one, I got ten out of twenty-nine, uh, out of <laughs> a third. Okay, it's not great, but actually, then you add in the ones where I picked um, my own pick, um, even though I thought the Eisners would go a different way, and it brings me up to fifteen out of twenty-nine, which, eh. Like I said, half right. Um, and then if you look at, if you actually uh, count the categories where I was totally wrong, where I you know, didn't even make any mention of what ended up winning or I, or I didn't sort of, I dismissed what ended up winning for some reason or another, that was 10 out of 29, uh, a third of them. So, I, I, you know, it's not great odds <laughs> to bet on my picks. But, um, but I... I feel like okay. I feel okay about it. So we'll get into it real quick. Um, I'm not going to name all the nominees, but I'll talk about the winners. Best short story, Killing and Dying, which is what I thought would win. Um, Adrian Tomine's, um Optic Nerve, and then the sort of title-grabbing story of his eventual collection of um, Optic Nerve stories, the last few issues from Drawn and Quarterly. Killing and Dying is really good. Um, and I think that... Um, I think that... Uh, Tomine remains, you know, I think there was a little bit of question and I, and I saw some, uh, some critical response to, to his book, but he sort of remains still an event in the way that Dan Claus's patience this year was an event when a book for, of his comes out. And so uh, not surprising, um, definitely worth the acknowledgement. And by the way, as I say all this, congratulations to all the winners. Um, and then uh, best single issue one shot, um, I had picked, uh, I love this part, I thought Pope Hats would get the nod. For some reason, I was surprised that Silver Surfer number 11 uh, by Dan Slott and Michael Allred, obviously Marvel Comics, uh, took took the prize. I don't know why I was surprised. I know that, um, I, I've actually followed the Silver Surfer series ever since Slott and Allred began that run, um, and now it's been sort of restarted post-Secret Wars. I've liked it uh, a lot. I think it's so unique what they're doing with Don Greenwood. I love that character. I love the sort of Doctor Who-ish story that they're telling. I guess I just didn't think that it would get the Eisner critics, um, you know, um, the that it would get the, that much um, applause. So, I, hey, good for them. That's awesome. Um, best continuing series, I was right in thinking that Southern Bastards would be picked. I kind of threw in Giant Days uh, just to have a little bit of a, I was going to say a dark horse, but that's <laughs> misleading in this field, so I should say a, uh, a uh, you know, outside pick. Um, Southern Bastards definitely deserves the, the Eisner, 
the award, um, and it's an awesome series. So uh, at least I predicted that one correctly. Um, in Best Limited Series, for some reason, I actually I talked about why I didn't pick the fade out. So maybe I should give myself credit for that one. I had picked Lady Killer um, on the merits of Joelle Jones' arrival, and I'll, I'll get to touch on that a little bit later on as well. But um, of course, the fade out. I mean, people loved the fade out. I enjoyed it. I sort of soaked soaked it up in two halves. Um, it was so good. And um, uh, but I guess I just thought, uh, you know, what I said in the episode, I think, is that I I thought there might be Brubaker and Phillips fatigue. And I guess there's not. So that's that. Um, best new series was Paper Girls. And I didn't pick Paper Girls because I thought um, not enough of Paper Girls came out in 2015. But maybe that doesn't matter to voters. Or maybe voters didn't remember that. Or maybe I'm wrong. I think there was maybe at least maybe two issues. And I don't know. Does two issues warrant a um, a uh, Eisner nod? Um, I guess if you're a new series, you can, they can live with that. So um, I had picked Unbeatable Score Girl. I thought Bitch Planet was going to win, and um, Paper Girls took it away. I actually would have voted for Paper Girls for this year, um, and so it's no longer eligible for this year, I guess. So we'll have to look at other new series. Um, and I don't know. Again, I think it's kind of a shame to not acknowledge some of those other series. I would have said the same about Monstrous, which is mostly, I think, in this in 2016 as well. Okay, now we get to the best publication for early readers, and... Um, the first category for the um, kids up to age eight, I picked two titles that um, weren't Little Robot, and then I was delighted when Little Robot won. In fact, that's why I wanted to talk about Little Robot, um, because I love Little Robot. Um, I had talked about, written and drawn by Henri- Henrietta, by Lanier's, um, Belgian artist, um, and then I talked about The Only Child. And really, everything on this list is good except I don't know anything about Anna Banana and the Chocolate Explosion. I haven't read that one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't have been surprised that um, that Hacky got the prize. I'm really excited for him, as you'll hear when I talk about it. Um, best publication for kids? I I was wrong. Uh, I thought either, I thought Roller Girl was going to get it. I would wanted to, to give the prize to Sunnyside Up. I guess I didn't realize how um, popular Over the Garden Wall was, which I should have known. They've actually done so well that they have a um, a ongoing new volume of the series. And actually, I have looked at it. I haven't read past the first issue. And, I mean, it looks fun. It looks cool. Um, Pat McHale and, and Jim Campbell for Boom. Um, but that's something I'll have to go back and read now. By the way, as I talk about this, I should also mention and shout out to um, the Comics Alternative podcast where Gwen and Andy, who do the Young Readers edition every month, um, did a a special episode going in depth about all these titles from the early readers categories, the kids read categories that um, I'm mentioning now. So listen to that episode if that's uh, stuff that you're interested in. and then in Best Publication for Teens, oh, actually, those two hosts agreed with me that Super Mutant Magic Academy as a teen book, I mean, yeah, I could see that for a, a high school kid, uh, but I was a little surprised that it belonged, that it wound up in that category. I mean, I can see it. It makes sense, but um, I had said March or Oyster War. March shows up elsewhere on this list, you'll hear, um, but Super Mutant Magic Academy is definitely worthy. I liked that a lot, so... So that's where those went. Um, best humor publication, you know, my pick, my prediction, and the Eisner went to Step Aside Pops. No huge surprise there. Um, in best digital and web comic, I guess I was a little. I didn't uh, give Bandit the credit of 
surviving a second year of popularity. And, you know, honestly, I think it's because of my own experience. I really liked Bandit. I have um, all three of the collections uh, or th- what is now <laughs> going to make the three collections. And I thought it was great in its first year and continues to be good. But I just had thought that, um, not that we were over Bandit, but that sort of the initial um, enthusiasm had already you know, would already kind of have moved on to other titles. And it hadn't, so good for Bandit. Um, best Anthology, I was right about the Drawn and Quarterly book. Um, best Reality-Based book, um, I was right in my own pick about March Book 2. Uh, best Graphic Album, I had said, um, I had, you know, put my own vote behind Nanjing, and um, and I thought Sam Zabel would win, and then Ruins won. And then... A, one of my blind spots really became clear. I have not read Ruins. In fact, I don't know that I've even seen it on a shelf, and so I'm going to have to make amends for that. Um, graphic um, album reprint, uh, I, I, said, I thought Nimona would win, and it did. So there's there's that. Um, while I'm saying this, I feel like I... I did better. I feel like I did better than 10 out of 29. Anyway, (laughs) I always do that. (laughs) Congratulate myself for all the victories and just glide over all of the ones where I was wrong (laughs) and excuse myself. So, um, best adaptation from another medium. I was right about two brothers, best U S edition of international material. I mentioned the realist, but I hadn't picked the realist. Um, and, uh, and it won, um, Actually, I guess I did pick. I kind of did pick the realist. I guess uh, you can go back and listen to the episode and fact check me. Um, best U.S. edition of international material. I had picked Showa and it won. Best archival collection. Um, I didn't make a pick here, um, but I picked the Eternaut in uh, the U.S. edition of international material, and that ended up winning. That's a great book um, from Fanographics. You really need to read the Eternaut. Um, and then best archival collection um project or comic i'd picked walt kelly's fairy tales as my pick um and it won and then best writer jason aaron that was no shock um, that was my pick best writer artist i think i had mentioned bill griffith um and that but i thought that noah van skyver would get it um ed pisker was my pick but i'm not surprised at bill griffith either i mean that's um that's a large body of work and then that he mined the aspects of his life this uh, story was great. Um, Penciler Inker team. All right. So I had thought that Erica Henderson would get um, uh, the 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 prize, and and when I did, of course, I was not like upset about any of these candidates um, or these nominees. Cliff Chang is really is one of my favorite artists. I have original art of his that hangs right literally right in front of my eyes right now um and his work is all over the place in in my collection and so uh, much love mad love for cliff chang and i'm happy for him um i hope eric henderson's art does get its due acknowledgement um elsewhere i think unbeatable score girl um well I'm, I'm not saying it got shafted in these eisners but i think that uh, it's so significant that maybe we're gonna see its um significance in in you know in historical terms later on. Um, I was right about um, Dustin Nguyen probably getting the nod uh, for Best Painter Multimedia Artist. Um, and then the cover artist I had um, given to Joel Jones, David Aha Wan. No surprise, that guy is amazing. His work is, is um, I think, has pushed um, comics, especially mainstream comics, into um, a contemporary design sensibility that... Um, we're not looking back from, and that's a great thing. 
Best colorist is <laughs> the boringest category in the world, Jordi Belair. Um, although I, you know, wanted to acknowledge Dave Stewart because I wanted to have my cake and eat it too. And by cake and eating it, I mean Jordi Belair and Dave Stewart. <laughs> um, best lettering. I mentioned, I think, that I hadn't read Trashed. Durf back Durf uh, one and I didn't see that lettering, so I <laughs> recused myself <laughs> from that miss. Um, and then best comics related periodical Hogan's Alley one, uh, and I I honestly that's the the one publication here I know the least about, so I'd picked the um, Michael Cadena's Washington Post blog. Um, best comics related work I was wrong about that as well. Kurt, the Harvey Kurtzman book by Bill Shelley one. Bill Shelley is incredible. Um, I should have. Probably saw that coming. Uh, best scholarly work, The Blacker the Ink, which I actually, you know, uh, gave a shout out to, even though I thought it would go uh, somewhere else. Uh, Blacker the Ink won, and that's great. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I've seen the table of contents, a bit, some of the um, some of the the pieces of it, and uh, uh, editors uh, Francis Gateward and John Jennings from Rutgers Press. Um, that's a book that I can't wait to to kind of consume all of. Um, finally, best publication design. I was just off <laughs> Sandman Gallery Edition I don't own that I don't know what it looks like it's way too expensive for me so <laughs> that was that so those are your Eisners and really the, the, the numbers don't maybe I counted wrong I don't know it just feels like I got more than half um, but uh, maybe again I'm just crediting myself for those categories where I you know talked about all three of them were all four of the, the possible winners um, yeah, so that was fun. Um, I think that the Eisners are, um, demonstrating, and this was kind of what I said in my piece, they are a, um, uh, just kind of a dipstick measure in the ways that the industry and critical attention in the industry are changing. And what they seem to say about the, the diversity of, um, characters, creators, stories, um, sources of comics if you compare the best artists from 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and their aesthetic um, to the range of aesthetics of the artists in, in this year's crop. Um, similarly, you know, the sources of where the best short stories come from. Um, this year, it's, you know, there's a vertical quarterly piece. There's a 24-7 piece. There's an oatmeal piece from oatmeal.com. There's, you know, optic nerve, and then there's a first-second um, uh, compilation. It's just... It just really kind of shows how how broad the, the the field, the industry, the the um, comics world is getting, and it's it's awesome. It's great. Um, so, yep, the Eisners are exciting. <laughs> you know what else is exciting? Little Robot. Um, let me get into Little Robot now. I'm going to take a pause and, and have a drink. And I've had my pause. <laughs> Um, the magics of technology. <laughs> so um, let's talk about Little Robot by Ben Hackey. And I try to do this analytical thing, try to bring in some academic perspectives or some um, you know professional knowledge in my reading of comics analysis. And uh, you know today not going to go that way. Um, I'm really just going to talk about Little Robot and my kid. <laughs> um, so. My kid, uh, as I said at the top of the episode, my kid read Zeta. My kid and I read Zeta together. And we read it together, and I think it's the kind of comic... Um, and my kid, from a very sort of precociously early age, could read, could read on her own, loved reading on her own, um, loved reading with us. You know, we read to her 
from the day she was born. And, you know, pretty much every parent knows that you're supposed to uh, read to your kid these days. But um, maybe compared to other parents, we did it a little bit hyper much. <laughs> and we did it with enthusiasm. Uh, both of my daughter's parents, um, both my wife and I, are... Um, are English teachers, uh, though I'm probably more of a nerdy and avid reader. Um, and significantly, we both read comics. I'm sorry, we, we read comics to her from an early age. Um, her room was filled, lined with peanut, peanuts, paraphernalia, and, um, and books uh, from the day she was born. And so the whole um, prospect of reading comics has always been, has been, you know, with her since... Uh, literally day one of her life. And um, I think that reading comics has been a um, huge boon and boost to her overall literacy. Um, she doesn't only read comics. She reads chapter books. She reads, pic- you know, she read picture books. She uh, she reads all kinds of things. And, you know, she's actually also just very into stories. Although she doesn't love movies because there's something in the um, action. You know, it's not even necessarily the scary parts of movies. It's the tension that's in a movie that you can't control with a page turn or looking away or slowing down. It's the fact that the action in movies happens in time that you can't control. That makes her nervous. Makes her literally leave the room when we're watching Shaun the Sheep <laughs> or something you know we think are, is quite tame. Uh, she, she'll get nervous about. Um, and actually, when I was reading Zeta with her, and probably too young, but she was probably three the first time we read it together um you know uh she she was actually a little nervous about it she was um not sure she wanted to go on and i think it was i'd read it in advance and i knew the sensibility and i knew that what might be scary or what might cause her a little anxiety would would actually be better met with a resolution that the story would bring than left lingering as she wondered what what happened to these kids who had been sucked into another dimension um, and so she ended up loving Zeta, um, though still, uh, I think sometimes the what's going to happen tension, uh, was a little nerve wracking for her. Um, same was true of Little Robot. Um, she was very attracted to Little Robot when we saw it on the shelf and actually got it the day it came out. And then soon afterwards got a chance to go see Ben Hackey when he made an appearance here in the Bay Area at a bookstore in a conversation that was actually um, sort of facilitated. It was kind of a conversation between Jean Luen Yang and, uh, and Ben Hackey. And it was great fun. Um, the, the two of them um, had a, just a really fun exchange. And there were kids there. There were adults there. Um, he sort of walked us through his next book, uh, which is a children's book about a troll, um, which I think is now out. Um, and Little Robot, um, you know, he was very generous, gave a nice signature. Um, my kid got her, her, uh, a nice signature and a little sketch on her copy of Little Robot that I'm holding in my hands. Um, and also, um, Mr. Yang was kind enough to, to sign a book that she brought that she liked of his. Um, but the, <laughs> the craziest part was we were sitting there, uh, w- watching Ben Hatke and Jean Yang talk. And um, somebody comes and sits down in the seat to our left, in the row to our left. And I point her out to my daughter. And I said, Eden, I think that's Raina. And she looks over and she looks at me and she says, yeah, that's Raina. And it was none other than Raina Telgemeier. 
who um, was sitting to our left. And it was so cool because, you know, you know, it's great to see Ben Hatke and Gene Yang in person. But to um, meet Raina Telgemeier in a context where um, others uh, hadn't uh, known that she would be there. In fact, I think most people besides the uh, bookstore owners didn't know that that, that was Raina Telgemeier. Uh, was amazing, and she was just so kind and so generous. Um, my daughter ran over enthused, <laughs> sort of hugged her. You know, I mean, if if Miss Telgemeier has personal space issues, she got over it because my daughter was just so excited to see her. You know, we have some original art of um of Miss Telgemeier's on our wall. On, on my daughter's wall um, from the Babysitter Club books that she absolutely loves and has read the heck out of and, you know, tattered multiple copies that she's now given away to friends and stuff like that. So that was really, really exciting. Um, Mr. Hatke, too, was incredibly generous and kind. And there's just a kind-heartedness in his, um, his tone. You know, who knows what kind of a human being he is. I do know he has... I think he has like four daughters or something like that or five kids or I don't know. And um, he, he seems to, um, on social media, um, you know, not show off, but but show that uh, he's a very family-oriented person. But, you know, in his books, there's a gentleness. Um, there's a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of tension. As I said, my daughter was, you know, nothing really super scary or creepy, but enough so that my daughter was a little nervous, you know, really a little nervous about those page turns but the stories are just really well told with great momentum and actually the protagonist of of both zeta the fact that here was a a girl who you know racially not identified but my chinese american daughter um could see herself in zeta and then the little robot featuring a girl who um you know looks like she could be african-american looks like she could be I, i don't know who knows she could be um Polynesian uh, from Polynesian Island, or she could be uh, any number of things that you would you would call brown. And um, and my daughter, um, although ethnically Chinese and um, you know lighter skinned, has always sort of identified more as a person of color than as a white uh, kid. And so she identified a lot with the character as soon as she saw um, the protagonist of Little Robot on its cover. Um, so Little Robot is basically a um, Again, a kind of gentle tale about a young girl who lives in sort of a trailer park. Um, this robot falls out of a truck, and she befriends it. Um, they hang around a junkyard and have some small adventures. Um, but soon, this this bigger, scary hunter-looking robot, uh, you know, comes after the missing robot from the you know warehouse stock <laughs> when they discover that this robot is missing. And you know, the whole tale is sort of um, uh, the, this robot finding its feet, finding its legs, <laughs> um, and the little girl helping it to do so. And then, uh, you know, a little bit of back and forth in their relationship. And then, um, ultimately, how do they um, escape the clutches of this this bigger corporate robot trying to um, fish it back? And uh, and do they retain a friendship? Um, it's, the stakes, I think, are, are well measured for um, a young reader. And my daughter... Uh, found both the the fun and playfulness and the sort of um mild suspense um really appealing and just sort of digested it all in a sitting and i think 
could identify a lot with the the small girl who sort of longs uh, for you know to follow her curiosity and adventure, and then probably above all longs for a friend. And that's really what um, the formation of a friendship when you cannot identify with a other friend. Um, in this case, because one is a human and another is a robot. But um, every kid, I think, um, especially in our times and in our world, um, encounters that. My daughter every day goes to preschool and encounters that question of, can I make a friend with these people who are different from me? Um, and so I think, again, the gentleness and the good-naturedness of the story and the fact that in this and in, in Hackey's other books, I, I feel like he has a persistent theme of saying that if you are the ugly, you know, monster, robot, whatever, you don't have to be. You know, you can join in the fun. You don't have to be what your um, construction or your biology or whatever has dictated you to be. Um, and you don't have to let that keep you from um, from friendship. Um, I think that's a, um, a beautiful theme. So, um, yeah, I love Little Robot, and hats off to Mr. Hackey. Hats off because I notice he has, he often wears a hat, which I think is really, he's a, he's a good-looking guy. <laughs> and so, you know, it's a, it's a good look for him, a hat, but I, I always think it's funny because he's a, he's a hat key. The hat is the key. Um, he, <laughs> I encourage you to read Little Robot with your, your um, younger kids. And uh, and listen, I have made a habit, and I'll probably talk about this all the time on the Friday Family graphic novel, of um, finding all ages comics that I love and then buying up multiple copies so that when I visit friends or talk to students uh, who have children now or whatever, um, that I give them one and spread the joy of literacy. And I think Little Rob Robot, um, you know, pretty light on text, but heavy on what... Um, many of these comics do really well, which is um, relationship dynamics that have enough stakes that you come to want to learn to read. And when I say read, I mean reading words and decoding text, but also reading sequential art and reading the, um, you know, all of the uh, cognitive stuff involved in making sense of pictures and sequence. Um, kids learn to read because they care about these relationships. They care about these characters. And um, Hat Key is exceptionally good at making characters you care about, um, including characters out of things that are um, that look like uh, garbage cans <laughs> or, um, or monsters. Uh, he's just uh, great at that. And so, uh, again, my hat's off to Little Robot. Uh, Well-deserved Eisner. Um, wonderful book. Okay. Um, we're at 35 minutes, um, and I still want to talk about what's on my pull list. Um, the pull list is named after the pull list, where um, comics readers and fans create a list of what they want um, for from every Wednesday on New Comic Book Day. So it's New Comic Book Day, and a few things to highlight. Um, I realized just trend-wise um, that I am enjoying the Rebirth titles from DC a lot. And I also notice, in fact, I, since it is so late in the day on Wednesday, I've already read um, the digital of many of the books that I've been following. And um, I, I realize that this is so bad because we don't want to encourage these companies to always do these reboots and, and these gimmicks. Do we? Do we not? I don't know. I mean, I liked 
all of the reboot stuff from Marvel as well the last time around. So maybe I'm feeding into the madness. Um, <laughs> if you hate me for that, if you resent me for that, I apologize. But I got to say, even Action Comics 960 um, or Detective Comics, uh, whatever number they're on now, 937, have been enjoyable to me. Um, I, I love the art that's going on in the in the sort of um, title character books, the Batman art and the um, Superman art. In fact, Superman uh, number, which is from last week, but Superman number three with art by um, Jorge Jimenez was impressive. And I, you know, as anybody who's listened to my episode of the podcast about Patrick Gleason from Superman one and two knows that um, that's a high bar to live up to. And I think um, Jimenez did a, did a great job. Um, yeah, I'm really enjoying these rebirth titles. And um, if you haven't jumped on, um, Man, again, here we are encouraging them, right? But uh, but I I think there are some good things to follow. Um, I'm intrigued by Wonder Woman. I talked earlier this week about Wonder Woman, one, uh, Rebirth, and one and two, and issue three came out. And you know, I think Liam Sharp's art is um, what do I say? It's it's like I think it's not as consistent as uh, even say Nicholas Scott or other. Wonder Woman artists, Wonder Woman artists, and um, and that's actually I don't know that that's bad. Um, it's almost 2000 AD like. I in fact he may have done. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know he's British, <laughs> and um, it's it's almost it's a it's a lot like some artists on Judge Dredd, for instance, where I always felt like it was like not the kind of look that just at first was appealing to me. Um, but for the story it was telling was always perfect. And I feel that a little bit about Liam Sharp on Wonder Woman number three out today. So I picked up that, picked up a whole bunch of other things that are, um, now sort of, you know, kicking into gear as series. Hope Larson's, uh, Hope Larson's written Batgirl number one with art by Raphael Albuquerque is interesting. Uh, interesting because Hope Larson was a very much a surprise in the announcement of creator teams. Um, she has a book out called Compass South, um, and uh, you know she's. Uh, in fact, there's a an episode of the Nerdist Comics panel, which it, it used to be part of the Nerdist Writers pan- panel. It's a, another podcast, um, and uh, and they do an interview with Hope Larson, which is really good. It's really good, interesting to hear. Um, I knew her, of course, from her um, adaptation of Wrinkle in Time, that um, was what quite popular. So um, her doing Batgirl is very it's very different from the uh, Batgirl of Burnside that um, just ended and um, and she's traveling in Asia that's kind of the premise and so um, it's different superhero comics and I and I and I want to reward DC for not for constantly relaunching things but yes for doing things that are a little bit um, different uh, off the beaten path. Uh, maybe he'll run into the new Superman. <laughs> or maybe she'll. Maybe Batgirl will run into the new Superman in China somewhere. Uh, now we got a whole bunch of our our DC heroes in Asia. Um, at Marvel, um, of course, Secret World, uh, uh, Secret Wars. What am I saying? Civil War Two turns on. Uh, Black Panther number four is out. That's exciting. Haven't read it yet, but um, I I always notice that I have this long list of Marvel books that I am following, um, but. Um, and this one is not for kids, but if you listen to the podcast that I always um, name check, uh, Robots from Tomorrow, where Mike and Greg um, do a weekly Polish episode and then a longer form discussion, uh, they just uh, came out with an episode 
where <laughs> I think it's titled like "You Don't Owe Marvel Anything," and I and I love it. There, um, there's almost a rant from uh, Mike and Greg, but um, but I think they're right. I think essentially what they were saying was, uh, "Look, Marvel, you're a huge corporation. You get a ton of, um, you know, our quote unquote support in terms of dollars, in terms of attention." Um, and Axel Alonso said something, I think, in a panel at San Diego Comic-Con about how you need to support, you need to buy the individual issues to make so that a, a series you like can make it to trade, and that's how you can support the X-Men books or something like that. Anyway, if you just want to hear some solid ranting uh, with a little warning that they they they, uh, they get a little blue, uh, check out Mike and Greg's um, episode uh, on uh, Robots from Tomorrow podcast. Um, but anyway, I, I'm reading, I'm following, I am plunking down the dollars for many of these series. And um, uh, I guess the thing that I want to spotlight right now, I guess this week, is that Miss Marvel number nine is out. And Miss Marvel's relationship to Captain Marvel, I talked about in, in, in uh, a previous episode of this podcast, is um, something that I think is interesting because I think they're positioning her to be the voice of another generation of characters in Marvel and maybe therefore another generation of readers um, in Marvel and uh, and I think they're setting up for after this Civil War 2 for there to be a new Avengers team or something like that consisting of younger characters um, that um, Kamala Khan is going to headline and so that's something worth watching I think um, outside of the big two um, I encourage you to read May by Gene Ha at uh, Dark Horse. May number three is out. Um, I encourage you to check out Pastaways, which is a, uh, a Matt Kent written um, uh, title that's out in trade. Um, that uh, That's also from Dark Horse. Um, and uh, finally, <laughs> in a very odd, un-Paul-like, um, un-Tuply-like recommendation, Brendan McCarthy's Dream Gang was serialized in uh, Dark Horse Presents, and it was—it's a trippy, um, very—it's uh, an—it's an LSD trip of a comic, and that usually isn't my bang, isn't usually my—did uh, I say bang? It's not usually my bag. Um, that was a non-Freudian slip. <laughs> so Dream Gang is not usually my bag, but uh, I liked it actually. It was so weird and so profound, and so. Uh, you might you might want to look at that if if you're feeling psychedelic. Um, and then image is uh, is image, uh, and they have a lot of stuff that continues to go on. I'm always there in front of the line for East of West. I'm always there for Autumnlands, Tooth and Claw, great another great series. Um, I've been semi interested in Beauty number nine is out, so um, yeah, encourage you to look at look at those. And finally, outside of the uh, Dark Horse Image and Big Two world, um, a few things that I would want to spotlight. Um, number one is that um, Archie number 10 is out. Uh, if you've been following Archie since Wade and Staples restarted it, and then you know other artists have come along, um, that's been kind of interesting to see. I didn't comment. I think I did say something about the Betty and Veronica that came out last week from Adam Hughes. So uh, I'll I'll reserve my commentary on that. Um, and then Adventure Time Comics number one. Um, again, the the Robots from Tomorrow guys talked about it as one of their pull list um, picks from from Monday, um, and that's been uh, good. Uh, and uh, I, I checked it out. Uh, interesting list of creators applying their talents to Adventure Time. This seems like a little bit more of a 
a little bit different from the Adventure Time uh, series of comics uh, that was going on previously. Um, and then, uh, look, some people are ROM fans, and ROM is back under IDW, and so ROM number one is out. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but um, I'm kind of interested in where that goes. Um, and, uh, yep, yeah, i got more on the list, but I'm realizing that this is really at the hard, hard, hard deadline. I always say this is, at first when I started this podcast, it was going to be 20 minutes a day, and then I just had to give myself a, the allowance of saying half an hour a day. It just still always creeps into the 40s. And that's not good. That's not what I'm trying to do. Um, okay. <laughs> Listen, tomorrow um, is Thursday, and that's when we do our Throwback Thursday. And um, today we learned of the passing uh, at 91 years old of Jack Davis, uh, a huge figure in comics. Um, and in uh, illustration and, um, you know, and sort of the visual pop culture sensibility of America in the last 50, 100 years. <laughs> he's, he's super important. So tomorrow's Throwback Thursday. I'm going to talk about um, the volume of the Mads Original Idiots um, <laughs> books that came out uh, earlier this year, I think it was. And uh, one of them is a Jack Davis. And it has a bunch of his classic um, work from Mad. Um, from the very early issues of Mad. And I think I'll use that to talk a little bit about um, humor art and also about uh, some of Davis's interesting ambivalence about his own prior work, especially the the sort of horror stuff that he did. Um, and, uh, you know, he's he is great. He's hugely influential. And, um, you know, we mourn his passing. And uh, so I'll talk about... Um, the original Idiots volume of Jack Davis, um, which is just what I happen to have on hand. I think there's some other really good, better collections of the range of his art, but um, I just don't have those. So, yep, yeah, come back tomorrow, and thanks for listening, and keep reading. <laughs>